Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. David Horberg is the Artistic Director of the Australian Ballet, and the company recently launched their 2023 season. David, thank you for joining us. And I wondered, how challenging is it to launch a season for the company when you have to both look to the future and help ballet as an art form evolve, but you also have to acknowledge a really major landmark in the company's history, its 60th anniversary? Yeah, well, good morning. I, interestingly, I was really daunted by the task. Um, when I, uh, you know, came into the position as artistic director and realized that the 60s was coming up, uh, you know, the Australian Ballet has a really rich history of, um, of giving dance and ballet to Australian audiences. But as well, it's a living, breathing art form. And it's an art form of today when, you know, we... We create um, every year new commissions, new creations. So I tried really hard to find that balance for our 60th anniversary in 23. I can imagine that it would have been a daunting prospect to say, I'm a relatively new artistic director and I have to do justice to 60 years of, uh, of rich uh, balletic history. Talk to us about how you approached that. Did you, for example, dive into the archives to look at past works considering what to bring back from the repertoire, for example? Yeah, you know... I did do a deep dive um, and realized uh, very quickly that there was a um, beautiful version that the company performed of Swan Lake um, for about 25 years. Uh, and I made the decision to unearth, you know, said version. And so we're bringing, we're re-realizing Swan Lake. And I think, you know, Swan Lake is a timeless piece of repertoire. Audiences flock to it, um, for lack of a better word, over and over. Um, and I, um, you know, it, it, it's a it's a question that Swan Lake um, must be performed to its most relevant um, way, and that's what we're doing in 23. And there's a lovely kind of, I guess, coming full circle, so to speak, because am I right in thinking that Swan Lake was the very first production the Australian Ballet ever staged 60 years ago? It was, and, um, you know, that... Um, that goes to the ambition of this company. I mean, Swan Lake is one of the most beautiful ballets ever created, but it's also one of the hardest ballets ever ever created for the dancers. And so the first performance was Swan Lake. And to hark back to our 60 years, I think it was really fitting um, to bring back, not that version specifically, but Swan Lake into the repertoire because, you know, it has stood the test of time. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous work that audiences love to see over and over again. Is it also a work that would serve beautifully as an entree for audiences uh, to whom ballet is perhaps a, an unfamiliar art form, or should they start elsewhere in the program with more contemporary work? Um, you know, I, I think Swan Lake is a really good intro. Um, it's There's nothing 
uh, there's no shying away from the fact that Swan Lake is really beautiful. I mean, it's visually beautiful to watch. And, um, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not afraid to say, you know, beauty is, is a part of the balletic art form to this day. And Swan Lake um, is something to see if you haven't gone to, if you haven't seen ballet before. But as well, there's contemporary work um, being presented in 23 that's equally as important. So I always say, if you don't know ballet very well, you trust your gut. Like, what do you, what do you feel you're attracted to? What do you feel that you like? and just give it a try. If we're talking about contemporary work, you've commissioned uh, two choreographers, Daniel Riley, um, uh, Wiradjuri man, uh, who's now the artistic director of Australian Dance Theatre over in Adelaide, and the company's resident director, Alice Top, to create new works for a double bill, Identity. Talk to us a little bit more about this work, which I'm, I have to say I'm especially intrigued by because I, I love to see the form evolve and advance and see what new choreographers are doing uh, and what, what new ideas they will bring to the stage. Yeah, I, I second that as well. I mean, I, I think it'll be a really interesting program to see what's created. But um, I think identity is a theme um, that really stuck with me for the 60s, but also the identity of Australia and sometimes the difficult identity of Australia's origins. And I asked um, a dear friend and fellow kind of contemporary artistic director of Australian Dance Theatre, um, Daniel Riley, who's a First Nations choreographer, uh, to express his sense of identity. It's a collaboration with with his company. And then on the other hand, um, a, another part of the program is our resident choreographer, Alice Topp, who is looking at the identity of the Australian ballet. She's bringing back um, dance luminaries that danced on the stage in previous generations. So it'll be a, a multi-generational sort of feast of dancers on stage stage to look at the history and the identity of, of this company. That automatically intrigues me, the idea of a, of a dance company exploring its own identity before our eyes. For, for you, David, talk to us about the, the company itself. What attracted you to the Australian Ballet to become artistic director, for example, and why is it such a significant company, not just on the national landscape, but internationally? Yeah, well, I first danced with the Australian Ballet in 2010 as a guest artist, and then I went through a, a harrowing um, ankle injury that lasted about two and a half years that the Australian Ballet medical team, uh, world famous at this stage, um, brought me back from. So I feel like, you know, the past has always led me to Australia and has always led me to the Australian Ballet. And um, becoming artistic director was, in essence, my way to sort of give back what they gave me, um, but as well to recognize um, an ambitious future for the company. And, you know, David McAllister was my predecessor. He was artistic director for 20 years. And although, um, you know, he, he led the company so powerfully for 20 years, I, I feel like I have a very different um, artistic vision from him which I think is a really beautiful thing, you know, for, for 20 years they had one artistic vision and then um, something completely different in myself and the vision that I have for the company. 
talk to us a little bit about that vision and how you will help the identity of the Australian ballet evolve. Because if identity is indeed at the core of perhaps this year's season, grappling with its, with its past, thinking about its future, thinking about what defines the company, talk to us about your vision and how that vision will help the company redefine itself, perhaps. Yeah, well, again, like I said, the this art form is is current and living and breathing. I mean, we're still creating works. We're not a museum piece. We're not we don't perform the same ballets over and over and just do that. And so I'm questioning a lot what our place in the um in the community of Australia in, you know, in um in how Australians perceive dance. And I think it's really important for us to stay um, really active in the conversation about relevancy, not just relevancy in dance, but relevancy relevancy um, in in this art form and in art in general. Uh, we still have to have, you know, uh, current conversations and and relevant conversations with our audiences, and that will always morph and that will always change. It's it's a very different conversation from 60 years ago, but it's still just as active. It's just still as um, as exciting um, and still as dis- as much of a discovery as it was. Um, you know, 60 years ago when the company was founded. In terms of discovery, one of the opportunities that the Australian Ballet will be presenting its audiences this year is the opportunity to see the Tokyo Ballet perform. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's great about um, the Australian Ballet is is we can, we have the capacity to invite companies from overseas and and present them to Australian audiences. I think that's a really beautiful part of who we are as an institution. You know, it's not just about us. It's about sharing um, other parts of this art form that maybe Australian audiences would never see. And that's um, done so in Tokyo Ballet's um, beautiful production of Giselle. Uh, another work in the 2023 season uh, uh, that I'm quite intrigued by is the production of Don Quixote, which is a f- what you're, you're adapting a filmed version of uh, Rudolf Nureyev's production of, of Don Quixote, which was what staged in 1970, then filmed a couple of years later in 1973. You're going back to that film and recreating it. So it's gone from the stage to the film and is now coming back to the stage. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the film is so beautifully beautiful. It was so well filmed in, in 73. And um, the dancing is extraordinary, but also the set design is extraordinary. And the idea is that we bring the film set, which is just enormous and elaborate and and textured and we bring that to the stage and I've I've seen um, the first pass of designs and uh, it just looks fabulous I mean it's it's really bringing um, what has been so iconic in the film with Rudolf Nureyev onto the stage again I'm intrigued by this notion of honoring the past while bringing it into the present, you're you're clearly uh, committed to the idea of evolving and advancing ballet while honouring its origins. Yeah, well, I think you know it's important for 
it's important for ballet to to continue to evolve. You know, we have beautiful origins and history of this art form. Technique has evolved. It's gotten bigger. People are jumping higher and turning turning much more. But um, there's also a sense that um, the art form is evolving. You know, storytelling is different. Um, modern storytelling is more relevant. And so it's a constantly evolving art form. It's one of the art forms that I think continues to stay um, within the conversation culturally around the country and around the world. In terms of uh, touring the country, I just wanted to talk about that aspect of the Australian Ballet's work, for example, because Melbourne audiences will see works on stage at the in, at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre, and that's their vision of the Australian Ballet. But the it is a national company. Talk to us about the challenge of touring ballet. I know that some of the theatres you may perform in, uh, the wings might be tiny, so the, the dancers can barely fit in the wings, let alone perform on the stage itself. But Clearly, also, touring is part of the company's DNA. Talk to us about the, the appeal, but the challenges of being a truly national company. Well, the appeal is certainly to reach audiences all around the country. It's, it's not just in Sydney and Melbourne. But, um, you know, not every town has a theatre the size of what we perform at, um, at, the, at the Sydney Opera House or Art Centre Melbourne. So I think... It's important for me to bring um, the kind of performance that we have in the in Melbourne and Sydney to other towns and and cities. And it, it doesn't mean that um, we we compromise on quality. We compromise on the quality of the repertoire or the dancing, but we have to um, sort of reconsider the kinds of productions that we bring, but not to reconsider the quality of productions that we bring. And I think that's really important because it, whether you live in, you know, Alice Springs, um, uh, Orange, or you live in Sydney, you're getting the same um, quality, the same importance, the same excitement that the Australian Ballet brings to any of its stages. For more information about the Australian Ballet's 2023 season, jump online, australianballet.com.au. 2023 season packages for Melbourne and Sydney performances are on sale already, and general public tickets, as well as tickets for Swan Lake in Adelaide and Brisbane, will go on sale on the 29th of November. But australianballet.com.au for more information about the company's 2023 season. I've been speaking with the Australian Ballet's Artistic Director, David Horberg. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Great chatting. Triple R. We're going to talk now about some fringe shows. The first is about a play called If We Got Some More Cocaine, I Could Show You How I Love You. A, I love the title. B, I heard about this play a couple of years ago. It was staged up in Sydney by at the King's Cross Theatre, and I was immediately intrigued. Uh, and joining us in the studio to tell us about the production is its director, Christian Cavallo. Christian, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So... What's the, the, I don't know, tell us the, uh, the, the summary of this play. The summary of this play. Okay, so we've got these two boys, Mikey and Casey. They've robbed a petrol station and uh, they're hiding out on uh, Casey's roof of, uh, of, of the house that Casey lives in. And they're basically hiding out from the police and all they've got is themselves 
and a bag of cocaine. <laughs> and, uh, and through the course of the play, we find out about their, their individual circumstances and um, things get real between them and they have to kind of come to acknowledging, you know, their feelings for each other and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a cute little elevator play, basically. We're trapped on a roof for 75 minutes and, um, yeah, there's a, there's a really beautiful story in there. And I understand it was developed or written as part of a program to specifically create theatre aimed at younger audiences and to give younger actors opportunities to perform as well. Yeah, um, and it was developed over in the UK, so um, obviously we weren't involved in that process, but um, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece and you can't help but... Um, you can't help but fall in love with its charm. And, um, yeah, like I'm, I'm really proud that we've been able to put it on for this Fringe Festival. Well, I'm delighted that you are putting it on because it yes. would give me a chance to see it at last, having read yes, the, 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 the script. Uh, and you're just back from Ireland I at am, the moment, and so. the play is set in Ennis. In Ennis Island, uh, In yes. County Clare, and yeah. I actually spent a couple of days in Ennis literally only about three and a half weeks, oh my goodness. three weeks ago. Okay, well, you're going to know probably <laughs> more about the area than I do. Um, but we get these beautiful descriptions of the location um, throughout the play and, and they're sitting on this rooftop and Mikey can kind of look out over the city and, and sort of say, well, over there's, you know, this area and that area and whatever. And so we get this beautiful description of, of Ennis and it surrounds through the play too. One of the things that really intrigues me about the play is it's a queer drama, mm-hmm. but it's a very different kind of queer drama. Yeah, there's there's not the sort of flamboyancy about this that you might find in other pieces. It's very just, you know, two very... Um, Almost, I don't want to say beaten down. They're not. They're not beaten down, but they are. They are sort of in a, a more oppressive environment to be able to live their most authentic lives. And um, and and really, what the play gets at is that growing up in this kind of regional setting where they're in amongst um, domestic abuse and and sort of you know violent um, people around them and influences around them. Um, you know, they, they they really struggle to have genuine relationships and, and part of that is their own relationship as well. So we get some acknowledgement of um of what they've had to go through and how they have to fight for themselves um in this in this kind of yeah, like a, a lot of us live in cities and um, it's it's now okay to, to walk down the street holding hands with your partner. But, you know, they literally talk about what if we did hold hands down the street? Like we'd, we'd get bashed, that kind of thing. And, and that's unfortunately still a real conversation for some people in, in different places in the world. It's particularly interesting to see uh, a depiction of working class queer life as opposed to the middle class or yeah. upper class queer life that yeah. is so often depicted uh, on stage or in film and TV, for yeah. example. You, you often see, I don't know, the, the, the beautiful bodies of the beautiful people who can afford uh, New York apartments, for mm. example, and, and their travails. Here we have, like, the character of Mikey I th- is this kind of working class queer boy who, if somebody's homophobic, he's going to punch them in the face. He's going to punch them and, in the face. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's, he doesn't take any shit from anybody, but then that causes more drama in his life. Yeah, and he has, he has this beautiful monologue about um, his first boyfriend or his first kind of love who has then gone off to, du- to Dublin and, um, and, and in Dublin has been able to find himself and he's kind of come back uh, a little bit more comfortable in, in his own queerness, I guess. But Mikey sees that and kind of goes, you know, who is he? You know, making a show of himself like that and all that kind of thing. I had to fight every day. I had to, you know, stand up for both of us to be okay in this town. And then he's, he's kind of gone off and, and become someone else. And so, yeah, we, we definitely get this sense of, you know, the regional... Um, 
the, the, the regional setting versus, you know, moving off into a city. And, and the struggle to be one's authentic self. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And you get this beautiful juxtaposition with the two of them through the play as well because Casey is a person of colour living in a regional town as well. So, so they've got that to contend with as well in that same setting. Talk to us about that aspect of the play, because uh, from having read uh, John O'Donovan's script for If We Got Some More Cocaine, I Could Show You How I Love You, a title I will never get sick of saying, <laughs> um, uh, the, the playwright himself acknowledges at different points in the script that you can uh, that directors and actors are allowed to adapt some of the dialogue to reflect the, the, the actor who is playing the role of uh, this young man of colour. Uh, which is, a, I think, a, a lovely acknowledgement that it may not be possible in a different country to find a young black uh, Irish guy from London, for example. So Yeah, and I think especially when you start describing someone's physical attributes, um, you need to have, you know, potentially a set of options that kind of allow you to cast the right person in, in the role as well. So that's, that's definitely re reflected in, in the script if you've read that. Um, but no, we've got a, we've got a beautiful um, young actor in, in the role and um, yeah, he, he does such a, a great job. He's got a lot of warmth and, and heart and um, yeah. And, and, and our other actor is fantastic as well. I can't wait for you to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your, your actors. So you, uh, yep. you've, uh, who, I'm just looking at the media release trying to find their got Lachlan names. Blair. Uh, Lachlan Blair and Grant Young. And Grant Young. Yes. Yeah. Um, they're, they're both fantastic. I've known Lachlan for, uh, or Lockie for, for quite a while. Um, we grew, well, we, we both came out of Geelong together. Um, and, uh, and, and then we were both at BCA at a similar time as well. And, um, so it's really lovely to be able to, um, have Lachlan in this play and, um, and work together after all this time. I think I met him when he was 16. Um, so probably nearly eight years on and, and we're finally, um, working on a show together and, and that's just been really wonderful and, and they've been so great to work with. We actually got this show up in a record amount of time. Um, we had another play planned, uh, for this fringe season and then that fell through and then we just kind of went, all right, let's jump on cocaine. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And, and Lockie's just been so fantastic at jumping in and, um, and I, and it, it does kind of help obviously knowing each other and, um, and having a rapport already. And then, um, yeah. And then Grant's just come in and, um, I saw Grant earlier this year in a show called Passing Strange. And, um, and then off the back of that, I just felt like when I saw him in that performance, he had the, this, the, the kind of vulnerability and the sweetness that, that I really wanted for Casey. Um, so yeah, so no, I'm really, I'm really thankful that they both jumped on, uh, on the train and, and here we are in the middle of a season. Did you have to make any tweaks or, or, or changes to the script to adapt to, for the actors that you have? Yeah. Um, so Grant is, is an American. Um, so, uh, we're playing that role as an American in this, in this production. And, um, but otherwise, uh, it, it's still very much about, um, someone from outside that setting, um, living in a town that, that they feel othered in. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that is obviously going to make this work, uh, particularly, as you said, you had to scramble to, to get it together in a way. <laughs> um, the fact that it is literally just one set and yeah. two actors sitting on a rooftop, mm -hmm. it's, uh, 
it means that, yeah, you don't have the demands of going, right, scene change and, and all of that drama. Yeah, I mean, I say scramble, but I, you know, we, we still had a little bit of time to lead up into it. Um, it's just, you know, we didn't have the sort of six months of planning that, that I would like coming into a production. Um, but yeah, we, um, we, we have one setting, which, um, which kind of makes it somewhat more manageable to, to get the show up in, in, a, in a shorter amount of time. But then there's a lot of props and there's a lot of finer detail in terms of, um, you know, the, oh, well, as with any play, there's a lot of finer detail that you want to that you want to really work into the te- uh, into the performance. So, um, yeah, so it's still been a really rich rehearsal period, I think. Christian, how did you first discover the play? The producer, Gavin Roach, um, came to me with a bunch of plays that um, that they thought I might be interested in directing. And um, this was one of the ones that, that really resonated for me. Um, I think particularly myself coming from a regional town, um, I'm, I'm from Geelong, and, um, yeah, and, and wanting to sort of champion regional stories. Um, yeah, that was that was one of my my motivators for for wanting to get this one onto the stage at some point. Yeah, and I have to ask, what's uh, Lockie's County Clare accent like? He's wonderful. Like the the accent is is actually so impressive. I've had so many people come in and say, "Is he Irish?" Or you know, um, so it's um it's been yeah. I was amazed day one. I was like, okay, you're right on it. Great, <laughs> Christian. For you as a director, uh, how important is it to be able to mount authentic queer drama on stage yeah like i want to see you know all kinds of different representation on our stages um you know i've directed productions like kinky boots and and uh and dusty the original pop diva and you get a a very different kind of show when you're (laughs) working in that territory and then to um to create something a little bit smaller and a bit more intimate and um and sort of have these real working class kind of representations. I think I think that's really lovely too. So that's yeah. an interesting shift from musicals yes. to kind of like small, kind of almost hard boiled uh, <laughs> kind of uh, queer drama. I mean, I think if you look closely enough at the production, probably my flair for <laughs> for musicality comes through in in, in little bits, uh, in in little pockets. But um, Jack Bermeister, who's our sound designer, has done a, a really great job of creating some really nice moments through the show too. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the fact that it is so self-contained kind of means that there's, I guess, the the drama is front and centre. You're not. This is not a, a show with I don't know a couple of revolves on the stage where the no. audience can go, oh, lovely stagecraft. No, it, there's it's not kind of, of those... like this is kind of it's a pure piece of theatre. Yeah, it's 75 minutes of of conversation. I liken it to something like Have you seen the film Before Sunset or After Sunrise? Th- those kind of films where the conversation just carries for the entire length of of the piece and so it is a really kind of you know sit down buckle in and um and and really pay attention and and be along for the ride kind of piece but um if you like your actor driven theater this is kind of the this is a great show for that and what are you working on next next i've got uh the mentor coming up at theaterworks in november we open on the 16th and go to the 26th of november we've got um the wonderful amanda muggleton playing the mentor and um another young geelong emerging talent uh in connor morrill who uh will be playing jordan opposite her amanda um in the play and i can't wait to get that one up for audiences as well 
bit of a not necessarily from one extreme to another, but a very different kind of a very different kind of show. Totally, but um, you know, this show is about two actors exploring the craft, and and then from that, you know, we jump off into bigger themes um, around their own personal lives and 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 the things that pop up when you are an actor trying to make it in an industry. So um, no, I'm I'm all about different kinds of stories and different kinds of challenges, and uh, and I look forward very much to presenting that one too. If you're intrigued by our conversation uh, and want to get along to see if we got some more cocaine, I could show you how I love you. It's on until this Saturday, the 16th of October, 7.30pm at the Meat Market Stables, 2 Reckon Street, North Melbourne. And you can book by going to melbournefringe.com.au. Having read the script, I'm really looking forward to seeing the production. So, Christian Cavallo, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me and I look forward to seeing you at the show soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Time for us to talk comedy and Melbourne Fringe, which is in full swing and one of the shows that you can see coming up from the 15th to the 23rd of October is Sal and Friends, performed by comedian Nat Harris, who may be familiar to many of you as a, a Friday funny bugger on the Breakfasters. Nat, good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you going? I'm really well. Well, I'm, I'm kind of vague and still kind of a little bit jet-lagged, but I'm very happy to be back. I'm really looking forward to diving into Fringe, and I'm looking forward yeah. to a taste of comedy. The last time I saw you performing was part of a, a, a kind of a group, well, not a group show. It was you and a and a collaborator in Pet Nat and Hannah Shakala doing sketch comedy. Yeah. Now you're doing solo sketch comedy. Yeah, we are. We both kind of just came together kind of after the lockdowns to collaborate but we were prior to that we were working on our own shows but we felt just a bit after the lockdowns we're like we weren't emotionally prepared to go the gauntlet on our own so yeah now we've kind of stepped away um and are doing both solo shows which is really fun and tell us a little bit about Sal and Friends as a show. You've created this yes. character who I think you've done some work with this character online as well. But Sal is going to be a character who is familiar to people in some ways. But how? Yeah, I think we've all definitely met a Sal at some stage or another. She's kind of, you know, in her 50s, that, that boomer character. She kind of epitomises, like, middle-class privilege, you know. So, I don't maybe it's your mum, maybe it's a woman who just sent her coffee back at the... Um, at the cafe sitting next to you. But, um, yeah, she's, I don't know where she, I think she definitely came to me or I started kind of embodying this character um, after years of working in customer service, <laughs> just dealing with this type of person. I don't know. I think I found it, like, therapeutic to be her. So, yeah, Sal and Friends is like a sketch comedy character show. I do play other characters, not just Sal, because I'm like, oh, she could be a bit much for 50 minutes. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I just play her and it's kind of like someone described it as a bit of a um, kitchen sink soap opera, which I really like. So um, she's got a like unhealthy obsession with her son who's living in London. And so the show's kind of centred around um, her preparing for her son to come home for her husband's 60th. So the stakes are high, Richard. <laughs> Did the, ca- 
character spring fully formed or was it uh, somebody who you had to develop over time to find the, the core of who the character was? Yeah, she just kind of started by, she was always trying to guide her son in London. So she was always like, that was the, the only thing. It was just kind of maybe a bit of a gimmick. I used to do her on social media going, what time is it in London? She was always asking the people what time is it in London and trying to Skype her son and always yelling, like talking really loud, I think, in public spaces with the headphones in, I think, was like her key trait. And then I just kind of elaborated her backstory more and more as it went on because I just kind of impersonated her talking loudly, inappropriately loud in public places, I think, was the main entry point for the character, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen. I hate to pick on the boomers, but the boomers do in cafes. (laughs) Now, that could actually end up being enormously frustrating for an audience rather than funny. Talk to us about if you start at that point, how do you then hone in to make it funny? Yes, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, it does sound incredibly grating, doesn't it? Um, like, I think, yeah, I think that if, there is, if you see a very vulnerable side of Sal, like, at the core, like, she's just really desperate to keep her son's affection. Um, so I think there's definitely a journey with her character, um, her desperation for his approval and kind of, oh, it sounds so cliche, but like what's underneath all of the, the chatter and and the, you know, yelling on the phone and talking about the Australian Open, like she's just a bit lonely. Um, but the show is, I'm very mindful as well of not being one note. It kind of, she's an annoying character, but yeah, there's plenty of heart and there's plenty of like shifting of gears um, it's a really fun show, and it does go into, like, silly, absurd places, so it's not too realistic. In terms of creating a show like this, talk to us a little bit about your the creative process. Are you somebody who writes out scenes, for example, or do you just do you improvise and, through improvisation, find the, the, the language and the, and the tone for each particular sketch? Yeah, I guess. Um, it's a bit of both. I definitely had some building blocks for this one from doing, like, videos of her on social media. Um, but then some other characters I put in were very much... I developed them by with an idea, like, you have a bit of a, a space you want to play in. One of the other characters I play is, like, she works for local council and she's a customer service trainer. And there was a few ideas, but I did just kind of really figure that out on stage. I had an idea of, like, some physicality. So that was really fun. So, yeah, it's a bit of a combination. And then also as well, like, I like to kind of piece the show together, like, as a puzzle, like, to make sure, like, you kind of raised earlier that it's not one note, that there is kind of something in there for everyone in the audience, not for everyone, but, like, that there's a range. Like, I like for the show to kind of build and then there'd be a release and making sure that nothing becomes too tedious and, and things are surprising. Nat, in terms of staging a show at Fringe, talk to us about the opportunity that Fringe presents as well, because for, I know for some comedians will treat Fringe as an opportunity to present a work in progress so they can fine-tune it, hone it, and then present it at next year's comedy festival, for example, which to me sometimes feels a little bit insulting to audiences. It's, it's like, oh, I'm getting, yeah. kind of getting something that's unfinished and not ready. The flip side of that is that Fringe is a great opportunity to experiment and to take creative risks. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's such a great opportunity for both like the audience and the performer because, yeah, I do hear what you're saying. There is this idea of people kind of workshopping shows to take them on to other festivals. Um, and I think as long as, you know, the like as long as they don't come underprepared, kind of like, oh, kind of not really valuing the space, um, I, I definitely could see how that would be insulting, but I think that there is also an opportunity to see people doing really raw, fun stuff on stage, which you do get to see. And being out at the fringe, and in terms of a performer, like, it's such an amazing festival. We're so lucky to have so many amazing festivals here in Melbourne. Like, just being there, I, I saw a bunch of shows last night, and... The atmosphere is so fantastic. There's so much going on. Melbourne is, like, out there ready to get behind the art, seeing so many different shows. So, yeah, as a performer, like, it's such a privilege and it, it is, yeah, such an incredible festival. And, yeah, the audiences feel just really warm and, and, and excited by the festival this year. I can imagine that. There's a, a, I'll be diving into the festival from tonight, having kind of uh, recovered, I hope, finally at last from the, yeah. the, the, the rigours of international travel, he says, boasting. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of some of the other shows that you've seen, anything you'd recommend, anything from peers and colleagues and friends that we should be hearing about? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I saw H Hannah Camilleri, who um, I did the show with previously, which you're familiar with. She's incredible. And she's got a mix of sketches. Um, I would She's only got, like, two nights left. I would definitely recommend seeing her. I saw an awesome play last night by Dougie Baldwin at the Motley Bauhaus. Um, really incredible, such an, an awesome performer, um, but also really funny. And um, also Nicolette Minster, I saw her do a show um, at Trace Hall and it was awesome. So, yeah, there's uh, definitely the hub has got so much going on, but there is definitely other venues outside the hub that are putting on some awesome shows, particularly the Motley Bauhaus. Um, which is really great. Great independent and relatively new space in Carlton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nat, in terms of uh, coming back to Sal and Friends, we've talked about Sal. We've talked a little bit about some of the Friends. Is one of those Friends Sal's personal trainer? Yes, it is. So, um, Sal's personal trainer, he's, I'm like, God, I'm taking such a stab at the older generation. Like, got to get the younger in there. So, I'm like, got to level the playing field a bit here. Yeah, so Sal's got a trainer. Um, he's ethically non-monogamous. He's really into rock climbing, bouldering the environment. Sal's a bit enamoured by him. So, it's a lot of fun and it's just a bit of a palate cleanser, I think, from, from Sal, which... Yeah, people seem to enjoy it. And that's definitely one that um, is kind of a bit more of an improvised character and a little bit of non-intimidating audience participation, which I have fun with. Nat Harris is performing Sal and Friends as part of Melbourne Fringe from the 15th to the 23rd of October um, at the Festival Hub at Trades Hall in the Archive Room uh, at 7.30pm uh, and tickets at melbournefringe.com.au. Uh, Nat Harris, thank you so much for joining us and chookers for a great season. Oh, thanks so much, Richard. Good luck with the jet lag. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. 
you were listening to the program, ooh, I don't know, July, August last year, you may have heard a conversation about the campaign to save the Nicholas Building, which is a beautiful building in the CBD, and it's a, a kind of vertical village of artists and studios and artisans and all kinds of interesting creatives. Uh, I'm joined in the studio for a follow-up conversation about the Nicholas Building, uh, Dario Vachaka is the spokesperson for the Nicholas Building Association. And Dario, you've got some rather ambitious plans for the space that have just been announced. We, we do, Richard. Thank you. Um, ambitious, of course, because we are artists and we're leading this um, vision for what could actually possibly happen in the building. Um, given a tenureship, which will last longer than a month, which is essentially what most... Um, tenants have in the building is a month-by-month license. And so, you know, our work has all been about securing that tenancy um, into the future so we can actually have uh, uh, continue our legacy, which has been going on for 40, 50 years now as, a, as an artist, artistic institution. Um, but to actually do so with a lots of different kind of ways that public can then be involved in the building. And so, as people might know about the Nicholas Building, it's massive and beautiful and amazing, and there's so many cool artists inside and lots of different creative businesses. Um, but it's only when we do open studio events that people really get to get inside and understand what's going on behind closed doors. And so now what we're looking at doing is really opening up the building to the public. And, yeah, we've got some, some great ideas. Before we talk about those ideas, let's cut to the heart of the, the, the matter in some way and say, how secure is the future of the Nicholas Building at the present time? Have the government come on board to support and, uh, I don't know, purchase the building for art, for posterity? We are insecure. The government has not yet come to the party. We have been calling for a pre-election commitment from the state government to come on board with the deal that we've put to them which means they don't have to buy the whole building. They just have to subsidise the rents, essentially. Um, ideally, uh, we'd like the building to be purchased and owned by the community, you know, by the general public. Um, and the idea of that is to really recommon the kind of capital, which is a huge gig in itself, right? But that's my kind of ethical, philosophical kind of, like, drive towards this future. But right now, we're insecure. We could be all kicked out in a month on levels... Uh, Two to, two to nine, which is mainly where the creative, creative tenants are. In the lower floors, that's the retail podium, they call it, in parlance. Um, and they've all got their four-year, five-year-long leases, so, you know, they're secure in their own way. Um, but what we have, actually, at the moment is a really... The, the, the plan that we have is a strong idea, and it actually has a lot of backing. Like, we've got 75% of the money we need to basically make this happen. And that's a significant amount of money. Um, now, we do, though, need the government to come in and actually land that deal. To make that, we need that commitment to happen very soon. Which members of the government have you been talking to? Are you talking to the Minister for Creative Industries, for example, uh, or, or other ministers with different portfolios? Yeah, we're talking directly with Minister Demopoulos, uh, uh, the Minister for Creative Industries, and he's, he's great, his team's really good. Um, and we have um, talked to other people within side of government around, could this be a cross-departmental funded thing? Because, you know, this also deals with tourism and jobs and education. You know, there's so many different things that the Nicholas Building does. It's not just artists. 
Um, and there is conversation about how that might work, um, but we've been advised that the best way of dealing with this is as a political um, uh, ask, and that it essentially needs to go straight to Andrew's office, in, in fact. Um, so Andrew's office and Treasury, um, and that we need Demopolis to actually be the champion of the project as the Minister for Creative Industries, and that also then entails Creative Victoria as well as the, uh, um, the, the, the institution that actually... Um, has the creative industries under its remit. Um, and again, great conversations with them. Everyone's really interested. They're all excited. They think it's really cool, but getting the commitment is a whole other story. Well, with an election r around the corner, hopefully that commitment does come soon because one of the, the reasons that, for me that the Nicholas Building is so important and that creative community there is so important is because there are so few artists left in the city. Price, rising prices have kind of meant that studios and artist-run spaces have been forced further and further out. So to retain an artistic and creative hub in the very heart of the CBD really does matter. Absolutely. That is the driving force behind all of this. Melbourne was built on the back of this kind of culture and, and, and people come into the city because of that independent vibe which, you know, artists, artistic studios and ateliers and artisans provide a city instead of it just being a cookie-cutter kind of Chadston, you know, shopping mall. Um, and we need to be in the city because there's so many different things that artists do, not just make things, you know, but we think things, you know, and we provide alternatives. We create provocations. We open up options for thinking through, um, you know, different things that affect society. And we need to be in the centre of the conversation. You know, we need to be in the centre of the economy, in the centre of the city to make that happen. Because if, as you know, if we're all spread, you know, through... The, the regions, you know, and some margins without being connected, not co-located, then it's really hard to collaborate, you know, and that collaboration is everything for artists. Dario, let's talk about some of the plans for the Nicholas Building, uh, assuming the government does come on board. You're talking about creating uh, a new rooftop green space for the public, for example, and also a multifunctional live performance space, another uh, much-needed performance space, again, in the heart of the city. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one of the key key things which we've been um, working with the, the sector, um, the Art Spaces Network, which um, the Nicholas Building's a part of, and you know, talking to other people with inside the industry, is the lack of a flexible, multi-use performance venue right in the centre. Um, that's affordable. And so, as we've said to Creative Victoria, we can solve so many of your issues in one go. Affordable studios, flexible venue. And, you know, it's, it, that venue would be what we're touted to be. And, and I just want to couch all of this, that this vision that we've kind of cooked up is not complete, you know. This will, if the deal happens, this is something that we'll be designing with the tenant body. It'll be something we'll be designing with the sector. And um, this is just one of the many options. Now... With this vision for the venue, that's about taking the ballroom that's on level two, an amazing space, which hardly any people know about unless you have a pretty expensive um, uh, subscription to the yoga studio that's currently in there, um, and converting that into, into, into a performance venue. And obviously a ballroom, <laughs> you know, like an amazing place where you can come and dance and drink. The sheer fact that uh, the Flinders Street Station ballroom took on such mystical and almost legendary uh, kind of uh, tone to it. 
really does reinforce that the idea of having a second ballroom in the city that people can actually regularly access, dance in, see shows in, uh, that in itself is such a, an attractive offer. Totally, because the Flinders Street Ballroom is still very mysterious. It's still lock and key. Yeah, Patricia Piccinini's exhibition got in there and it took rising years to coordinate and so many different bodies. This would be an accessible space. Exactly, and it's interesting because its history speaks to that as well. So the Flinders Street Ballroom was always for the upper class. The Nicholas Ballroom was always for the lower to middle class. So that remains, you know, as, a, as, an, as an aspect of what we would be looking at doing, 100% opening it up to the public. And tell us a little bit more about this idea for the green space on the rooftop as well. Yeah, so that's a really exciting opportunity. Um, obviously, that, the, the position of the Nicholas is just phenomenal. The views out to Birarangmar, et cetera. Um, it's, it's 10 storeys high. And we've been working closely with um, Urban Creative Studio um, to design a concept up there which integrates... Um, Solar integrates uh, green and has a glass pavilion, which means that a lot of its energy um, will actually circulate and um, we'll be able to do things like have a food garden up there, have a gathering ground as well, you know, where we can, you know, have ceremony and fire pits and we can have sculpture gardens up there as well. The idea of having a glass pavilion is that um, it will allow us to host galas, events, festivals, the way we've designed it would mean that you could have multiple different things happening simultaneously. So, you know, it becomes a really good festival space, basically. And obviously in that position, um, you just couldn't ask for a better, a better venue. Yeah. Obviously, in some of our designs that we're looking forward, uh, we've put forward a proposal to City of Melbourne actually to run a um, festival next year, located at the Nicholas Building, but streaming down Flinders Lane, so Flinders Lane Festival. Um, and part of that would look at actually integrating what's happening in the ballroom to the rooftop and also to the light well, which is in the centre of the building too, that will also be a vertical green space and also be able to be used as a performance venue and gathering space at other times. These plans are not that ambitious when you really consider what is already existing in the building, uh, but what they do offer is such an attractive proposition. Again, in the heart of the city, retaining the artists and artisans and craftspeople who are already there and then adding so much more. That's it. That's it. It's actually a bit of a, I hate the term no-brainer, but, you know, I just used it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, if once people actually look through the proposal and they go, oh, wow, actually, this just, all this ta takes is money and time. And, and we know how to do these things. It's not as if they haven't been done before. They haven't been done in the way that we're planning on doing them because we are artists and we have a vision which means we're looking at integrating everything and making a circular economy in the building and making it have an impact which otherwise, if it's master planned from the outside and, you know, trying to bring in artists to, you know, sell your, your vision, it, 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 this, is, this is having from the ground up, you know. This is a grassroots community-led vision. Um, and... It absolutely is realisable, you know, and and I think that you're right. Actually, using the term ambition is it's a it's a double-edged sword, um, and it's better than aspirational because I think that um, it is ambitious in that no one else is doing this, right? It's ambitious to expect that um, the state government and the city and philanthropy and corporate investment will get behind an initiative like this because they don't do it that often, you know. They do it on a grander scale. You know, state government has no problem in spending a billion dollars 
um, to lease spaces that will make a bigger deal happen for a corporate investor. But when it comes to a smaller thing like this, which on the outside actually looks like a big thing, right? It's it's difficult. Um, Hopefully, if uh, anybody from Steve Dimopoulos' office is listening, the Minister for Creative Industries, uh, it, this really does sound like such a valuable proposition that would build on what already exists and further enrich the, the creative environment in the Melbourne CBD. Dario, if people listening want to kind of learn more about these plans for the Nicholas Building, uh, I presume they just go to www.nicholasbuilding.org.au. They absolutely do, and there's lots of stuff that you can look at in there. Um, if you do the forward slash vision, then you can look at the plans. If you do forward slash directory, then you can actually do a 3D virtual tour of the building, which has just come up, um, that was uh, made by Ross Coulter, an amazing artist. And um, you'll see what we're talking about, you know, the potential of this building and also what's already going on in there. So that website again, www.nicholasbuilding.org.au. I've been chatting with the spokesperson for the Nicholas Building Association, Dario Vachuka. Dario, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.